Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It's Tuesday, you know what that means. We're going to try to talk about some good stuff today because it's Good News Tuesday. Not everything is doom and gloom, even though our planet is on fire and... I don't know. The global market is crashing. At least these capitalism. I have no idea what's happening out there. I don't know. But we're going to find the good things that are happening today. So let's go ahead and get into that. Global market's crashing. I'm just... Don't say it. Today on... That's not happening. That is not happening. Okay. <laughs> U.S. and EU leaders urge to change tack on Kosovo and Serbia tensions. U.S. inflation has steadily cooled. Getting it down to the Fed's target rate will be the toughest mile. Ukraine creates database bar linked sanctions hit by Russians. Or sanction hit Russian. In Good Twos Newsday, Car Lovers Road Trip reunites 90-year-old vintage Austin with every previous owner. In a more Good News Tuesday, Utrecht scientists, much less plastic in oceans than they thought. And more, even more, molecule in breast milk could reduce cerebral palsy in infants by boosting brain matter. Today on August 8th, 8-8-23 edition of Before Coffee. Okay, first news story. Oh, I forgot to put on the music. There we go. Music is on. Right. Set it to. Okay. First news story. The U.S., the EU leaders. About Kosovo. This is from Lisa O'Carroll in Brussels. Group of influential politicians, including the chair of the U.S., German of the U.S., German, and British Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committees have written to the U.S. and EU leaders to urge them to reconsider their approach to easing tensions between Kosovo and Serbia. In a shot across the bows of those leading international efforts to normalize relations between the two countries, they have criticized the lack of pressured place on Serbia. It says the EU-facilitated dialogue has yet to yield positive results. A strongly worded letter reinforces Kosovo's concerns voiced behind the scenes that the EU and the US are siding with the Serbian leadership. It comes two months after tensions flared in, north of, in the north of Kosovo over mayoral elections that Pristina says followed the letter of the law but were marred by a boycott of Serbian voters resulting in a turnout of less than 4%. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before. Most countries have a law that if this amount of people don't vote, they can't legally say that person is the majority representative of the population because you know no majority of the population voted no <laughs> uh-huh. prime minister blamed the violence in the north of the country on the fascist mobs controlled by the government of neighboring serbia and said he had rejected a u.s request to relocate recently installed mayors from their official offices entered the serbian president alexander Pushik announced denounced the election as invalid and accused Kosovo of refusing to enter a dialogue. 
The authors of the letter say, EU and US efforts to resolve the crisis are not working. Nerds to rethink of approach. Think a approach. Attempts to disrupt democratic election in Kosovo by Serbia must be criticized publicly as foreign interference tangible measures implemented to hold them accountable if they continue to undermine free and fair elections, the letter said. It was sent by the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Lincoln, Anthony Lincoln, and the EU's High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Josep Borrell, who has been leading recent efforts in Moldova and Brussels to de-escalate tensions between the two countries. The current approach is not working. The authors wrote, we would ask that the international community learns from our past and ensure we do not adopt a Belgrade-centered po policy for the Balkans. Signatories include Bob Mendez, the chair of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Michael Roth, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the German Bundestag, or state, I guess, because... Alicia Kearns, the chair of the U.K.'s Foreign Affairs Committee, along with the politicians from the Czech Republic, Ukraine, Ireland, Lithuania, Estonia, and Iceland. Letter added that Kosovo had faced significant repercussions following the election of the mayors in four municipalities in the north of the country. Elections that the majority of Serbian population of the area boycotted. By contrast, the letter said there was a lack of pressure on Serbia following the detention of three Kosovoan police officers by Serbian authorities. They failed to hold account those responsible for attacks on the peacekeeping. A4 course. That, the signatories wrote, highlights the current lack of even-handedness in addressing such flashpoints. Ushik subsequently called on Kosovo authorities to withdraw what he termed alleged mayors in northern Kosovo to defuse a crisis that prompted violence. He claimed at a meeting of European leaders in Moldova and later in Brussels that the Kosovoan leadership had refused to enter the dialogue to resolve the crisis. Behind the scenes, Kosovoans had accused the U.S. and the EU leadership of, in effect, appeasing Serbia and fears Russia would involve itself in the Western Balkans. An additional 41 members of national parliaments and the European Parliament also signed the letter. So, they're just asking somebody to do something, because just saying, no, this is how it's going to be, is only going to create more conflict. Just get over it. That's life. It's unfair. That's not gonna work. Okay. 4% of the vote, guy. 4% of the vote. 4%. Your story. Okay, newest inflation news is from AP. This is from Christopher Rugber from uh, Associated Press. Over the past year, inflation in the United States has tumbled from 9% all the way to 3%, softening most of the price pressures that have gripped the nation for more than two years. Now comes the hard part, squeezing out the last bit of excess inflation and reducing it to the Federal Reserve's 2% target rate is expected to be a much harder and slower grind. A measure called core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, is even higher than overall inflation. It too seems likely to slow only gradually. The Fed pays particular attention to core prices as a signal of where the inflation might be headed. In June, core prices were up 1% from a year earlier, according to the Fed's preferred gauge. 
We see some challenges in getting all the way back to 2% quickly, said Michael Hansen, a senior global economist at J.P. Morgan, who actually thinks he could control inflation. <laughs> that was my last little part, my editorial part. The stickiness of inflation could endanger the possibility that the Fed will achieve a rare soft landing, a scenario in which it manages to slow inflation down to its target level through higher interest rates without derailing the economy. The illusion of control is a very strong psychological tool, don't you think? If inflation were to remain elevated for a long, too long, the Fed might feel compelled to further raise its key rate from the current 5.4 to, to a 22-year a high. But it, most economists say they think the central bank is done hiking, but only if inflation continues to cool. At the same time, the Fed has acknowledged that inflation pressures have eased significantly over the last year. Encouragingly, that slowdown has occurred even while this economy has continued to expand and employers have steadily hired at a healthy pace. In Thurs on Thursday, when the government will issue inflation data for July, economists expected to show a slight pickup in year-to-year -year inflation to 3.3%. It would be the first such increase after 12 months in declines. But that's just prediction. It's not an actual anything. In part, any rebound in annual inflation for July will reflect higher gas prices. Unless they ease, gas prices could keep overall inflation above 3% through the end of the year. The national average pump to price has jumped about 30 cents to 3.83 in the past month. In the one hand, they're saying, we only want to pay attention to the core inflation. And on the other hand, they want to cite gasoline prices. Make up your minds. You say you're not going to pay attention to volatile, volatile inflationary things like food prices and fuel. And then in the very next paragraph, start quoting fuel prices as if, oh, yeah, well, that's still a thing. Which one is it? One obstacle in bringing inflation down as the Fed's 2% target is that the price slowdown so far has reflected mainly relatively painless changes not likely to be repeated. Until last month, for example, gas prices had already plunged from a peak of national average of $5. And as supply chain snarls that had swollen, the price of cars, furniture, appliances, and other physical goods have mostly unwound. The cost of long, long leasing manufactured Long-lasting, they mispronounced lasting, there's no T. The cost of long-lasting manufactured goods, they didn't pronounce it, they misspelled it. Actually, the cost of long-lasting manufacturing goods actually declined slightly in June from a year ago. Or long-lazing, as, as it says here. The long-lazing. Another factor is that prices had soared in the first half of 2022 before slowing in the second half. So any increase in July would have the effect of boosting the year-over-year -year inflation rate. What's now sending prices up is mostly the cost of services, everything from dental care and auto insurance to restaurant meals and summer concert. These costs could mostly reflect healthy wage gains for workers, which are often passed on to customers in the form of higher prices. Energy prices are off. Yeah, right, exactly. We need to make money, you silly consumers. What are you thinking there? Our profits were lower this year. Energy prices are off, commodity prices are off, core goods fell, said Kristen Forbes, an economist at MIT and former member of the Bank of England's interest rate setting committee. That's the quick, easy stuff. 
What's left is an underlying wage service inflation. That's the part that's hard to slow down and will take longer. Yeah, we want to hurt people at the bottom. Many employees, especially in the economy service sector, could push for further raises in the coming months when labor shortage is still a problem with service industries. Workers have leverage to demand higher pay. For most Americans, pay gains have trailed inflation for two years. Your net workers use that leverage. It is yours now. This is the rare chance you will ever have in your life. Use it. High, higher pay is one key issue driving stakes among Hollywood writers and actors. It was also a focus of Teamsters Union in negotiations with UPS, which led to large pay gains. The United States Auto Workers is also pushing for robust raises in its talks with U.S. automakers. Hanson of the Jeep. Oh, I'm leaning in my cameras. The Fed has also been coming under some criticism for sharply rising rates and potentially putting the job market at risk. Senator, Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Massachusetts Democrat, wrote to Paul before the Fed met last month and urged him to forego another rate increase. The central bank, though, went ahead and did it anyway. The Fed's aggressive tech rate hikes disproportionately threaten black workers and their families at risk fully reversing the extraordinary labor market gains we have seen warrant a frequent credit Fred very wrote with political pressure on the Fed rising Powell and other officials may seem the precipitous drop in inflation in the first half of the year is having been the easy part the Fed has gotten lucky so far and what it's gotten says Stephen Blitz chief economic economist at Global Data TS Lombard. Most of the decline in inflation was going to happen anyway. <laughs> they really own the part that's to come. In other words, all the rate hikes have done is hurt poor people. They really haven't had any effect on the inflation. It was going to come down anyway, and they're going to act like they did it. Yeah. So, yeah, we did this. We brought inflation down. So what we got to do is we got to bring it down more. When they're thinking, and the entire world knows that it was not interest rates that were driving inflation. It was corporate greed. Your story. No, it's really funny about them always saying, oh man, people want to get paid more, so we better increase the prices so that we can still make our 20 yeah, times exactly. the normal rate. Like, oh, yeah. I don't want to make 10 times the wage of the lowest worker. I want to make 20, and I never want to let that go. I never want to stop yeah. making 20 times the normal weight of the normal worker. And that's the yeah. problem right now with Hollywood, because they mentioned that, right? Oh, right. those actors want more money. Yeah, because all the production companies are making 400 times mm -hmm. the slowest actor. 400! And and they, and they, what do you need they, all that money they, for? They use CGI instead of actors anymore. No. Yeah. Oh, well, instead of practical. Practical effects is much more expensive. But they didn't yeah, stop using it extra. because they can't afford to. They, they, did, they stopped using it because it's way cheaper it, or they get more money. Profits. Profits. Yeah, they get more profits. That, that, nothing you know, to do that third yacht needs a crew, man. That exactly. third yacht needs a crew. nothing to do with they can't, they'll go bankrupt if they do this. No, they'll and be the airplane Actually, and their private jet the needs no seat. Anyways. The private jet story. needs new car seat covers. <laughs> next story, speaking of rich oligarchs that just don't give a shit about the normal person. It's from Daniel Bofi and Dinbro. From Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi to Andy Warhol's Four Maryland. 
it amounts to an art collection that could grace any gallery in the world. But rather than being the highlights of a blockbuster exhibition at a major gallery, these are just some of the 300 and counting pieces known have been recently owned by Russian nationals under Western sanctions that have been entered into a searchable database set up by Ukraine's National Agency of Corruption Prevention, or the NACP. Agency's War and Sanctions Portal lists paintings and sculptures thought to have been bought and sold in recent years by Russian super-rich, the Russian super-rich, accused by the West and Kiev of aiding and abetting Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. The purpose of the tool, the agency said, was to make it easier for virtuous art market participants to carry out sanction checks make it difficult for Russian oligarchs to sell such assets. Ah uh, yes, don't let them actually get physical money because that's the whole point of the sanctions. Western economic sanctions imposed on hundreds of Russian individuals are designed to restrict the ability of those who are profiting from or fueling the war to move their fortune around the world. Artworks can be relatively easily sold across national borders without alerting the authorities. The subjective nature of value of the value allowing prices to be easily inflated or deflated. And Piquity's art and cultural object market is said to have had a global value of $65.1 billion in 2021, according to the Financial Action Tax Force. An intergovernmental laundering watchdog that published a report in February to advise on a regulatory best, best practice. I'm like, if this is commonly used for, like, for doing laundering, money laundering, why don't they just not let people do it? Why don't they just say you're not allowed to sell photos, uh, paintings? I don't know. Seems weird. Because <laughs> rich people use it as that. a... NACP said Russian oligarchs are still all too easily able to hide and launder their money through art objects, despite the sanctions imposed on them. Painting, sculptures, artistic jewelry is exactly what is used as a loophole to circumvent sanctions. That war and art section will contribute the work on preventing the circumvention of the sanctions. Finding artistic assets of sanctioned Russians the aim of their further freezing and confiscation and future transfer to the Ukraine. Among the collectors named on the portal is the former Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich, who is said to have acquired a number of well-known pieces over the years, including the Francis Bacon triptych from the 1976 Alberto's Giometti's Woman of Venice, I and Eight albums from the series, Ten characters by the American contemporary artist Ila Kabakov. The works bought are said to have been an estimated value of $103.9 million, or $128 million. Porto discloses that Leonardo Salvatore Mundi, dating back from about 1500, was acquired by the billionaire Dmitry Rybolovlev, although it has since been sold on, while Mikhail Friedman, a close ally of Putin and co-founder of the Russian multinational Alpha Group, acquired Warhol's Marilyn Monroe tribute in 2013. Inclusion of famous works by artists as varied as Claude Monet, Damien Hirst, and Augusta Rodin highlights the extraordinary wealth accumulated by those said to be supporting their Russian leadership. The portal invites submissions on the potential ownership by sanctions hit Russians 
of other pieces of valuable art through an online forum, with the agency recognizing that the process of updating information is quite complicated because there's no official data on the direct owners of art objects. Formally, it can be their relatives, or the owner can change several times in a short period of time. Currently, the section contains information on more than 300 art objects. They have among their owners are Russian billionaire Yakov Kantor, model Daria Kova, rapper Timur Nusov Mati, and other individuals who are under sanctions for directly supporting Russia's war against Ukraine. The estimated value of the works identified is $1.1 billion. In some cases, the art has been sold onto people who are not on a sanctions list, but their past of Russian ownership has been included in attempt to discourage such assets being used for chip. Don't buy them. Don't pay for them. Or if you're going to pay for them, pay like one euro. Hey, yeah. that's a great. I'll pay my. The max I'll go is one euro. My budget's, my budget's 20. <laughs> I'm not here to buy all the sanctioned art. I mean, that is one way to basically stop people from getting money is you. That's not going to happen. You make sure that they're not getting a lot rich of money from it. Rich people boycott. are always going to buy paintings to hide their money. That's just the way it is. No, I'm saying the other rich people who are not pro-Russian, that boycott yeah. buying the <laughs> for a lot of money. <laughs> That's all I mean. uh, you think, oh, hey, you think they, these... The, these rich people have a chance to not buy them for a lot of money. That's what I'm saying. If they all gather together and say, we're not going to buy that painting unless only for 5000 or whatever, instead of the $1 million or whatever they sell for. I'm just saying. They could do it if they work together, but who knows. They want to kill that golden goose? Go. Sure. Ahead. Why not? A bunch okay. of people make a lot of money off that overpriced art crap. Yeah, I'm just saying specifically <laughs> the Russians don't have to. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just saying that rich people are just greedy. They don't care about borders. They're just greedy. They just care about filthy, being filthy rich and whatever. You know, looking better than the other guy or something. I'm not sure what they care about. It's sure ain't other people. <laughs> I guess my story. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was done. Leave me hanging. Don't leave me hanging, man. I'll be sitting here hanging forever. Milk, milk, breast milk. This is from the Good News Network. Uh, reporter, I guess you don't have it on it. It just says Good News Network. It says milk. Let's make this bigger so I can read it. Milk, molecule in breast milk will reduce cerebral palsy or cerebral palsy. I'm not sure you pronounce it. In infants, by boosting brain matter. About 10% of babies born eight weeks premature will develop cerebral palsy resulting from infections that damage nerve fibers deep within the brain. While there's currently no treatment to help these infants avoid the outcome, new experiments using neonatal mice provide a possible roadmap. Researchers at Duke Health in North Carolina identified a fatty molecule in breast milk that triggers a process in which stem cells in the brain produce new white matter, reversing the injury. Assistant Brett Professor Eric Brenner, MD, PhD, Department of Pediatrics at Duke University School of Medicine, is the study's correspondent author and called the finding promising. The fact that the molecule is already found in something that is safe for premature babies is extremely encouraging, said Brenner, or Benner. It has already been proven that fats in breast milk benefit a child's brain development, but there's more types of fats. 
This work has identified a lipid molecule in breast milk that promotes white matter development in the brain. Now we can begin to develop a therapy that isolates and delivers this lipid in a way that is safe and unique for challenges of these infants. Uh, how about a breast? Anyway. Well, it's probably, fun, said, probably hard to suck on it. Who is one of the co-founders of TELUS Therapeutics, a Duke spin-out company developing that brings therapy from the bench to the neonatal intensive care unit. An upcoming clinical trial administered the identified fatty molecule intravenously to patients. This is because many of the infants who are part of the vulnerable population also have gastrointestinal issues and cannot yeah. safely be given milk or medication by mouth. According to the study published this week, the Journal of Stem Journey of Cell, the Journal Cell Stem Cell. The lipid molecule enters the brain and binds with stem cells there, encouraging them to become a produce a type of cell called oleg oligodendrocytes. That word I just said are like a hub that allow for production of white matter in the central nervous system. The newly produced white matter is preterm infants prevents the neurological damage that would otherwise impact the child's ability to move, the hallmarks of cerebral palsy. The timing of brain injury is extremely difficult to predict. Thus, the treatment that could be safely given to all preterm babies at risk will be revolutionary, said Agnes Chow, MD, a former fellow at the Division of Neuro neonatology and first author of the paper. As a neonatologist, I'm excited that I may be able to offer a treatment to families of babies that are affected by preterm brain injury who would have otherwise had no option. The fund, the study was funded and the funny was stunned by the National Institutes of Health, among others. Your story. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, yep. it's very hard to take care of uh, a child that has not been fully formed at all, so that's why they're in those gigantic containers. They are basically and supposed to be still in the womb. And more good news, this is probably from a scientist at a place in Utrecht, because uh, there's no author. They have discovered that there's way less plastic in the oceans than they thought. The size of the plastic soup is a lot smaller than was thought for years says researchers from Utrecht University, while the United Nations states that it concerns 75 to 200 million tons of plastic, according to researchers, there are about 3.2 million tons of floating in the ocean. So it's not even anywhere close to 75 million. For years, scientists could only feel a, find a small fraction of the estimated amount of plastic in the ocean, about 1% of the highest estimates. The other 99% was known in books as the paradox of the missing plastic. The research, which used more than 20,000 measurements from around the world, provides an explanation for this. Much less plastic is transported via rivers than previously thought. Plastic that does end up in the ocean remains floating on the surface in large pieces of for longer than expected, and therefore changes less quickly in microplastics. According to Eric von Siebel, oceanographer and climate scientist in Utrecht University, this is basically good news. Large pieces of floating plastic are in principle easier to clean up than microplastics. Microplastics are a piece of plastic that are usually invisible to the naked eye, but are very harmful to nature. Animals swallow these pieces of plastic, and also the animals that later end up on our plates. 
much is still unclear about the effect of the microplastics on humans. Yes, there's an idea like just like how back in the uh, 80s all children had lead in their bodies. People born in the 2000s or later are all gonna have microplastics in their bodies. It's gonna be in our blood. You'll be able, when archaeologists discover um, remains in the future, they'll be like, oh, this is a millennial because they have plastic in their Right. <laughs> It'll be a very easier, well, maybe not in their blood, but they'll probably have plastic in their bones even. We'll be plasticized, plastic people. I, I'm of the theory if we wake up 200 years from now, it would totally blow our minds. Anyway, <laughs> nothing like we would ever imagine. Anyway. Agorasing to ban Seabill. Uh, the fact that the outcome of the study differs so much from the previous estimates has to do with the measurement method used. Research in the plastic in the ocean is relatively new. The study on which old estimates were based took place in 2015. Much more has been measured since then. According to Van Siebel, scientists that had make assumptions based on the amount of plastic that ended up in waste systems due to lack of measurements, for example, little is known about Southeast Asia. So we looked at how the waste system works. We started on the other side and based ourselves on what measure of plastic in the ocean. Combine those measurements with what we know about how plastic oceans. The study used 15,000 measurements that sailed across the ocean with special nets and 7,000 measurements taken from beaches. Also, 120 measurements taken up on the deep ocean range. All these measurements were put into a mathematical model. The study has been carried out well, but I am not yet convinced that there really is less plastic in the ocean than we think. Says Professor Wyme out, out, oh, here we go. Out your wall. In response to, to the Utrecht study at TU Delft, out your wall conducts research into plastic and rivers, among other things. Oh, we're bringing Delft into Watch out. I feel like the super, super smart, uh, like, science people. The difference with the previous studies in large is very large, and I see no reason to assume that the previous studies are so far wrong. The study challenges us to understand the cause of the difference. Fazia Aulasse, head of the Climate and Injury at Greenpeace Netherlands, reacts cautiously provocatively results of the study. It is an interesting study, and it is a relief that less plastic ends up in the calculated studies. At the same time, mainly shows that our disposable plastic ends up in other places, rivers, on land, and in agricultural and in the woods. Tim van Emmerich, researcher at Wageningen University, says despite the research, there is still a lot of uncertainty about plastic in the oceans. 20,000 measures sounds like a lot. The ocean is huge. Research supports the idea that much less plastic from the rivers ends up in the ocean. That is good news for the open ocean. On the other hand, it remains on the other side. So we've got, okay, there's not a giant floating plastic island, perhaps, but it might all just be, you know, on the, in the creeks, you know, and I do see a lot of plastic in the, uh, the canals, so not floating like rivers or, or like little islands or anything. You know, a couple of cups, you know, just get stuck on some sediment on the side. Water and well, there's definitely too much garbage. Yeah, there's too much garbage. Your story. Either way. Okay. When you're short but sweet. Good news news day. A car lover. This is from the Good News Network. Uh, 
a car lover's road trip reunites, reunites 90-year-old vintage Austin with every previous owner. Now this, uh, uh, this is from the Good News Network. It doesn't say where necessarily. Oh, it's England. This is okay. A car fanatic has taken an extraordinary road trip to reunite his vintage motor car with every owner who had cared for it during its 90-year history. Carl Slater bought the 1933 Austin 10 Saloon last February and became interested in its history. Using its logbook, he managed to track down the previous owners of the car on Facebook and started organizing a road trip to visit them all. After year of planning, Carl left his home in Manchester, England, traveling to Shropshire, Shropshire, they have a town called Shropshire. Wow. I live in Shropshire, where Elizabeth Morris became the car's first owner, buying the Austin in 1933. While he was there, the 53-year-old and wife also met Brian Denny, who had worked at E.G. E.J. Gittin's garage, where the car was brought in for repairs after 20 years on the road and two owners. He visited the, the cottage near the garage where Elizabeth lived before her death in 1943. I managed to find out so much information, like that Elizabeth was the only child. It's just kind of spiral with people telling me information like where they had lived before, where they had, where they were buried, or what occupation they had. The datified then headed off to Ty Draw Farm, a 45-minute drive into the hills, where two brothers used a car to travel their local market to sell eggs. Carl drove the same route the brothers would have taken. He said he nearly didn't get up the hill, and, and at one point, he thought the old Austin must have had a muscle memory of the journey last traveled 80 years ago. We wondered if the car was getting deja vu as we slogged our way up. We tackled the hills at a slow and steady pace and only needed first gear once. I did think if the car had thoughts, she would be saying, oh no, not again. Carl then visited Rupert Bevan, who came into possession of the car in 1968 after first passing his driver's test. By that time, the car was 35 years old and was needing regular repairs. Rupert recalled driving south to London when the car broke down in the A5. That was the last time he saw the car after he left it on the side of the road. <laughs> but he oh, regaled the no. car with many more tales. I just left it on the side of the road, and it survived. He told us stories of mechanical mishaps and his tangle with the cattle truck while running his errands with his mother, a 97-year-old senior who was even older than the car. She became the next stop on the road trip, and it was a touching reunion with, for her in the classic car collector. I'll never forget the look of surprise and joy on her face seeing that old car again. Decades ago, this particular Austin saloon was featured in in quite a few scenes of the, 19, the 2016 film Dad's Army, a World War II era comedy that starred Catherine Zeta-Jones and Bill Knighty. One car, one can only imagine how many other fantastic stories we can learn from cars if only they could talk. There you are. Oh, okay. More good news. Okay. Cool story from England. Okay. And culture news. Chaos in the aisle. A cinema etiquette reached an all-time low from Stuart Heritage. The enormous amount has been made lately about Barbie and, to a lesser extent, Oppenheimer reversing the terminal decline of the theatrical experience. 
films have enmeshed themselves in the cultural conversation in ways that movies simply don't do anymore. As a result, scores of people who don't have which to go to the cinema are being dragged out to see them. This is a good thing. Anything that prolongs the life of cinema deserves to be celebrated. Which isn't to say that it's a perfect outcome, because all these newcomers have clearly forgotten how cinemas are supposed to work. The last few weeks have been a rash of headlines about a number of regrettable blow-ups that have occurred because people just can't seem to remember the basic rules of cinema etiquette anymore. In Maidstone, a woman took out her ticklish, took her ticketless child into Barbie, an act that resulted in a stand-up, full-volume physical fight. A Brazilian Barbie screening ended with a similar brawl, apparently because a woman let her child watch YouTube throughout the movie. Get a babysitter. Oh. Nor is it is this confined to Barbie. In June, a fight broke out at a screening of the Little Florida, and in March, the same thing happened in France at the end of three. Meanwhile, Twitter is a wash with tales of poor cinema etiquette, from taking, from talking during films to taking photos during film. Now, there are two ways of looking at this. The first is that social media has made it easier for people to, re to record and publish fights in cinemas, to the extent that the Maidstone melee seems to be, have been posted by multiple accounts from multiple angles, like a sort of mega zaprooter. Perhaps, for all we know, cinemas have always been a tinderbox of mouthy idiots itching for scrap. But it's only since the advent of shareable video that anyone has actually noticed. But then again, the fact that this that all these fights were recorded on phones, an environment that repeatedly and explicitly discourages the use of phones, speaks to the deterioration of etiquette in itself. Plus, as a regular cinema goer, myself, I've seen firsthand the lack of basic common sense that has trickled in over the last few months. I went to see Barbie on opening day, and although it was nice to see a full auditorium for once, it was slightly confusing to see how many people had brought their children along, not their older, the age-appropriate 12, 12A children, either. Their tiny, young toddler to in all honesty were unlikely to appreciate the intricacies of a film that largely exists to deconstruct feminist iconography. The room was preceded by a trailer for Joyride, in which all the characters start singing the line from Walk about all the horrors in the house. I don't know if you've ever seen several dozen moms simultaneously panic in the dark, but I recommend it. <laughs> Whoa, what is this? So what's causing this spat of awfulness? My guess is our old friend, COVID. The lockdown of 2020, coupled with the film studio's sudden mania for singing, flinging all their new releases on the nearest streaming platform, got people from going to the cinema altogether. Nobody wants to spend several space, several hours sitting shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of strangers in a space when there's a fatal virus going around, after all. And it isn't like people were, went to the cinema all that much before either. Given the enormous cost of tickets and snacks and babysitters. The fact that Barbie is so successful means, for a huge percentage of its audience, this will be their first cinema visit since 2018. Four years is easily long enough to forget some of the rules. Yeah, I already forgot to talk to people because of COVID. Like, talk to people in person. I was talking to people over the internet all the time, but when I actually had to physically be near people, I was like, huh, how do you do this again? <laughs> They're so used to twin screening during films at home that it seems alien for them to not have their phones in their hands. Honestly, I think that's also crazy, right? If I'm watching a movie, and I'm, I, I do notice myself doing it. I'm watching a movie, and I'm like, oh, let me see what's happening on Instagram. I'm like, why am I? I'm watching a movie, so I have to like, I have to watch my movies on my phone. That way, I can't switch to social media because then the movie stops. <laughs> <laughs> What's what's a movie on the phone? You can't even see it though. It's like it's oh, fine, the little '90s screen. It's awful. Yeah. It's 
it's not it's, it's if it's not a cinema who cares um, it's not the experience they're just so used to talking through films at films at home that it seems unreasonable to be expected to remain, remain silent in a cinema and when this sort of behavior means a lot of people have spent a considerable amount of money to enjoy a film of course violence is going to erupt it's like stumbling across an unexploded bomb being on a stand, standing room only train next to someone who has a backpack slung in an empty seat. Things are always going to kick off. Good news is that the wild success of Barbie and Barbieheimer might have reminded people how much fun it is to go and see a new cinema. Things are rough now, etiquette-wise, but this has shaken people out of their slumber enough for them to return to cinema regularly. Then it'll only be a matter of time before they start obeying the rules again. Bad news is that Barbieheimers don't come along every day. Unless the Meg 2 and explicit ends up becoming Star Wars level hit, it might be a while before these people. people. Commoners, not like me. I go to the cinema these five times a week. These ruffians. Stuart. These rogues. Well, Stuart, Stuart Heritage, we've read from him before. He is a very opinionated guy about the movie. Mm. He's a cine. He's, he's a. What is a cinephile? I think you would definitely admit that he's a cinephile. But that's our story, so don't forget right. put your phone on silent or turn or it leave off. Leave it at home. Shut it off completely. Save your I, battery. Some people, some people, yeah, some people pay for things with their phones, so I can't tell them. You can turn it off for sure. If you're worried about like an emergency, like if you have a babysitter, you can leave it on silent or vibrate. Don't go to them. Right. Yeah, but other yeah, than that, yeah. yeah, don't freaking. Yeah, I just don't get. I in in Europe we have uh, intermissions. That's when you take your phone out. You need to check something. We have we have a oh. uh, red. We have intermissions. In the U.S., we have that friendly reminder before the movie to tell you to shut your phone off. Yeah. And okay, all right. This day in history. In 1173 in Pisa, Italy. What is Pisa known for? Tower. Exactly. That's when this construction began on this day in 1173. The poorly built tower began. <laughs> 1814. Well, th well, to be fair, it's been there for 800 years. Or <laughs> okay. Almost. So, yeah. Well, well over 800 years. That's not so bad. 1814. Or it would have fallen a long time ago. They were, they were keeping up. Uh, in 1814, uh, defeated U.S. General defeated by U.S. General Andrew Jackson at the at the Creek Indians signed the Treaty of Fort Jackson requiring them to cede 23 million acres of land comprising more than half of Alabama and part of southern Georgia. In 1854, Henry David Thoreau's masterwork Walden was published. In 1896, Russian dancer and innovative photographer Leonid Massin, one of the most important figures in the 20th century dance, was born in Moscow. In 1945, the second atomic bomb dropped on Japan by the United States, struck the city of Nagasaki. 1969, American actress Sharon Tate and four others were murdered by followers of Charles Manson, leader of the communal religious cult known as the Family, or the Manson Family. 1974, Joe Ford was sworn in as President of the United States, succeeding Richard Nixon, who had resigned. In 1988, Canadian hockey player Wayne Gretzky was traded from Edmonton Oilers to Los Angeles Kings in a big old deal there. 
1995 American musician Jerry Garcia, who personified the hippie counterculture for three decades as the mellow leader of rock band Grateful Dead, died at the age at a heart attack at the age of 53. I just brought some. Uh, I just brought some uh, Garcia weed yesterday. Interesting. What a coincidence. 2014, Michael Brown, an unarmed African-American teenager, was shot by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. It's already been nine years, resulting in days of civil unrest and protests fueled by tensions between Ferguson's predominantly black population and its predominantly white government and police department. And our featured event. What's that up? I just said Sorry, that. Sorry, I'm doing. Can we rewind the tape? Sure. Why? Because for some reason I was doing August 8th, like oh. August 9th. So let's delete that and start over. We can do that tomorrow and it won't be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Edit. Go back. Okay. <laughs> this day, August 8th. <laughs> In 1588, forget the leaving to our pizza, that's tomorrow. 1588, the English fleet won a decisive battle over the Spanish Armada off the coast of Gravelines in northern France. In 1846... and it was gone forever, I believe. What happened? That was it. That was yeah. it. Also, some really bad weather, too. Yeah. 1846, the Wilmot Proviso, Proviso, an attempt to prohibit the extension of slavery to new territories in the United States, was proposed, and then... Debate followed, the Republican Party was born. In 1901, American physicist Ernest Orlando Lawrence, winner of the 1939 Nobel Prize for, Nobel Prize for Physics for his invention of the cyclotron, was born in Canton, South Dakota. 1907, jazz musician Benny Carter, an original and influential alto saxophonist, was born in New York City. 1945, the United States and Soviet Union, United Kingdom, and France signed the London Agreement, which authorized the Nuremberg Trials, in which former Nazi leaders were indicted and tried as war criminals in an international military tribunal. But then it got off, so it didn't do anything. Sorry to let you know that. Yeah. It was all we for still show. had. Yeah, yeah. 1963, armed robbers stole 2.6 million pounds from the Glasgow, London Royal Mall train, Royal Mail train near Berdigo Bridge, north of London, in the Great Train Robbery. Oh, wow. 1981, Swiss tennis player Roger Federer, who was born. 1992. The U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, the Dream Team, easily defeated Croatia to win the Barcelona Games. Not a really big deal. 2000, the wreckage of the Hunley, a Confederate submarine was lost, that was lost during the American Civil War, was raised from the ocean floor near Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. It was the first submarine to sink in an enemy ship, the Union Sloop Ustanik. And 2011, Tibetan scholar Lobsang Sangye was inaugurated as Prime Minister of Tibetan's government in exile, becoming the first non-monk and first person born outside Tibet. Hold the position. And the feature event was the resignation of Richard Nixon. Wow. Faced with a near certain prospect of impeachment for his role in Watergate scandal, Richard Nixon resigned this day in 1974 and was succeeded by... Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon famously famously said, "I am not a crook. I am just a thoroughly dishonest person." 
So, Roger Federer birthday, Jimmy Wales birthday, 1966, American entrepreneur. Dustin Hoffman was born this day in 1937. Esther Williams, swimmer and actress, was born in this day, 1921. And P.A.M. Dirac, English physicist, was born in 1902. And what day is it? I wish I could tell you all, because 8th was not a day of very many things, but it is a day of very many things. Would you like yeah. to know? Yeah. Today is National Pickleball Day. So oh, that game boy. that, oh yeah, that game that's really taken shape with people that don't want to be in shape. <laughs> I've taken, I've taken the country by storm, pickleball, special pickleball day. It's National Mochi Day. Do you know what mochi is? Because yeah, if you don't, we can look it up. rice so much that it gets into this, like, almost, like, marshmallow-like texture. Yeah, mochi. yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. with stuff. It's National Dollar Day, which is every day, if you ask me. National Happiness Happens Day, especially yeah. if you have a lot of dollars. <laughs> And some pickleball. Got a pickleball tournament to go to. It's National Whataburger Day. You know about Whataburgers because you were from New Mexico. So you know yep. Whataburgers. Uh, I don't remember the Everybody outside like. New Mexico. Uh, go ahead. I don't remember what it tastes like, but I know it exists. Big old sloppy burger with some fries, man. So what else do you need to know? An International Infinity Day. So keep that in mind. It's National CBD Day. And... For yeah, some reason, the, the, <laughs> some reason, the picture of National CBD is to like old guys surfing. I'm not sure what that is. It's National Frozen Custard Day. Oh my! Hey. Now we're onto it. And also, <laughs> it's also sneak some zucchini into your neighbor's porch day. I swear to you, that's what it says here on the screen. Sneak some zucchini into your neighbor's porch day. It sounds like, I don't know. Oh, okay. Crank. Oh, why is there a zucchini <laughs> here? That's random. Why is there a Way zucchini? to confuse people. Why is there a whole bunch of flies and maggots on my porch for the last week? Oh, yeah, that <laughs> zucchini. International Cat Day is August 8th. And Global Sleep Under the Stars Night is August 8th. All right, that's it. That's all of them. National Cat Day, man, you should have warned me. I yep. could go grab the cat. Okay. You still got time. You got time. Sneak a zucchini in your cat. Sneak a zucchini. No, that's the point. Because if <laughs> some cats jump, they see a cucumber or a zucchini. That's exactly right. Aha. Yeah. They had no idea what to make of a long, skinny green thing. <laughs> long, skinny green thing. All right, man. Okay. Well, this has snake. been Allison here from the Netherlands. Who's gonna go pet my cat and eat some frozen custard? And I will see you on Wednesday for <laughs> wacky news on Wednesday. Don't forget. All right, this is Roger for the United States with the comprehensive news of planet Earth on August 8th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons. Follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.